These trees are still grand. Rhino horns are lightning proof. Did we really exhaust the usefulness of spermaceti? There is no animal known as nature's surgeon. What if a marine biologist refused to say bioluminescent? Poison ivy could also be a sinister command. It's dumb to mistake narwhals for unicorns. Has anyone noticed that caves are mouth-like? The Great Plains are both great and plain. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 27th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast that you won't have to look for very hard to find. In fact, it may be right under your very nose. If we were playing the hot or cold game, or whatever that game is called, you would be burning up right now, because you are so close to finding the Out of All Doors podcast that you literally could not be closer. Because this very podcast is the Out of All Doors podcast, and it's about the outdoors and subjects related to the outdoors, such as, I don't know, wacky products and interdimensional travel and the world's worst long-defunct bookstore and stuff. This month, I wanted to take a few minutes to do an honest-to-goodness intro an introduction, a sort of rundown of everything that you'll be encountering over the course of this episode as we venture forth together. Unfortunately, I can't really do that, because even though it's late at night on February 23rd as I write this, I don't have any of the other material for the episode yet, so I don't actually know what there's going to be. But we can take some guesses. In no particular order, there's going to be... Number one, this intro. And once we get through this portion of the intro, there's also going to be a part where I answer a letter to the show from a listener named Wilson. Number two, there's going to be an advertisement for my Patreon right here in mid-intro, right now. It's at patreon.com backslash huge pop, and you can get bonus content if you sign up for even one buck a month. I'm working on a novel and making almost no money right now, so if you want to help, it'd be a huge help. Huge help almost sounds like huge pop. (laughs) Number three, there's going to be a segment where I read you a bunch of new products from Gentleman's Mills. I don't know what those products will be yet, not even in a general sense. Maybe it'll be a second month in a row of apps. Maybe it'll be Halloween costumes for the second time this year. Maybe it'll be Thanksgiving centerpieces for the second time since the show began. Or maybe it'll just be different kinds of solvents. Number four, there's going to be a visualization exercise. That'll probably be at the end. It's always been at the end before, so I don't know why I would change it now unless... Close your eyes. Lie down. Relax. You find yourself in a small wooden rowboat. You are alone. You are rowing, listening to the gentle swoosh sound as the oars pull through the water, listening to the creak of the boat's hull, the wind rattling the brown weeds along the bank, scraping them together. Winter is retreating, but spring is slow to come, tentative, afraid to poke its shaggy head from its hole, afraid of the bite that lingers in the air. But you are not afraid. You are made of sterner stuff, and you are bundled in thick, warm clothes, and the bite of the air reddens your skin but does you no harm. In fact, it feels good as you work the oars. It cools the sweat on the back of your neck, It cools the sweat on the back of your wrists where your gloves do not quite cover your skin. In a few short months, this scene will be overflowing with life and evidence of life. There will be varying greennesses, bird cry and bird song. There will be many turtles and many more frogs. There will be insects and the fish who must eat them. 
There will be deer on the banks, still and solemn, antlers sprouting freshly from the crowns of their noble heads, fawns with marked fur, but the spots will soon fade. But as of now, right now, as you row, there are none of these things. The brown and the gray still hold sway on this day, and the sound of the oars and the water is yours. You set the cadence, you make the pace, you take in the swoosh sound and feel it absorbed in the muscles of your shoulders and your upper arms and lower arms, the flex of your hands and the gloves and the smooth wooden grips, and the rhythm you hear is the rhythm you match and it circles on through you, on through you, on through you, and the boat glides across the wind-rippling surface of a river you've just come to know only now. There is calm in the transit. There is calm in transition. There is calm in between. There is calm crawling along the pathways that pass through you. Calm seeking passage. Calm seeking limbs on which to alight like a rare bird of somewhere more humble than paradise. The air smells of water that was recently solid in state. The river stretches out before you like the arm of awakening woman stretching stiffness away. You imagine the waggling fingers ahead, the tributaries splashing slashes, the quick-eyed enthusiasm that precedes passion. The current is with you, but the current is not for you. The river has no opinions. You stop rowing for a moment, lift the oars from the water, and watch the river drip from the blades back into itself. You focus on floating, the physical feeling of floating. You know it's the boat that is doing the floating, but you feel that you float with the boat, not because of it. You lie back flat on your back with your head in the back of the boat and look up. The sky is a blue notable only for its possibility on days only like this one. You will never see a sky of this blue on a day unlike this one. You will see better blues, but never this blue unless the day is nearly exactly like this one. The clouds, however, the clouds are as common as mundane thoughts, comforting too, like mundane thoughts. The sky is the right combination of exclusive and open. It lets you belong, but makes you feel cool for belonging. And the sun is there too. It perches there staring. It can't get enough of beholding this planet, of watching us spin until its eyes swirl spirals, of following along and mouthing the words when it sees yet again an event that it knows. And that too is calming, the sun with its softened, uncritical gaze, restrained and reined in by the season. The boat bumps. You hear it and feel it, the thunk of the bump. The wood against wood of two drifting trajectories, crossing by meaningless chance at a time and a place as described by a man in a room in the past. Up you sit and look. You see what you've bumped. A sodden log dark with the weight of its water. A waterlogged log lethargically lugging water weight. It meant you no harm, nor your boat, nor itself. It has river within it. If you were to lift it and wring it out like a rag, what would be left when the river came out? What would remain in your hands? You nudge the log away from your boat, and it moves on towards slow oblivion, or maybe a fate less tinged by the dreadful you hope but can't know and don't hope to know. And here, coming toward you, there floats yet another odd piece of some puzzle. A branch with a Y-shape, like the letter writ crude, like the letter scrawled by a hand succumbing to numbness. And the Y of the branch makes you think of three words. Y word one, yesterday. Yesterday there was a thunderless storm. The wind and the rain seemed unsure of what to do. They missed the old, swollen old voice of their brother. Y word two, yonder. 
neither wild nor blue. Your yonder is sensitive. Your yonder is calling for calm, and it's working. Your yonder is purple, like bruises on fruit, like the rot that you swallow and tolerate fine. And it nourishes fine, and you regret nothing. It's fine. It's not a bad purple, despite how it seems. It's a natural purple that needn't stoke fear in your furnace. It's a purple you'll see in your yonder someday. Why word three? Yasseri, he's a character in Catch-22. And was that the drop of the proverbial other shoe? Was that the twist? Was that the, for lack of a better word, joke, the punchline? How earnest is any of this? Your boat is a lifeboat. Were you aware? It has life in its name. Does that simplify things? If you were to reach inside the pockets of your coat, you would find that they are not empty. Is that enough information? You cast the oars overboard. The river accepts them soundlessly, graciously, reserving its protest for young cannonballers, those in the months when the heat is afoot. As the oars drift away from the lifeboat, they form a new letter, recognizable too, at least as recognizable as the natural Y. The letter they form is the number 11, a number with which you have three associations, two good and one bad. 11 Association 1. It is your favorite hour of the night. It is not naive, but still holds potential. Eleven Association 2. It used to be your unlucky number. Eleven Association 3. It has recently become your lucky number. You look for other items to cast overboard. There are very few. A few foam discs designed with the express purpose of preserving life. You cast them overboard. O's, all of them, floating away. Order, ocean, ovary. Oats, oaks, ohm, ozone, origami, opal, oath, oil, ornithologist, ode, obligation. Your boots, your gloves, your clothes, they do not look like letters as they float away, as they sink. Did you think there would be a message? Did a Y followed by an 11 seem like the beginning of something important? No, you suppose not. And then a wave from upriver gathers you up, you and your lifeboat, and bears you foamingly downriver, a decisive wave. The river has deigned to opine, and it shall arrive at its point in due course. Not that the end is not fixed, but only that the appropriate suspense must be built. The appropriate framework must be built. And so it is. You ponder all that has come before. You sift through the sensory details, the mild musings, the events such as they were. Was it a sincere effort at creating a calming experience? Was it supposed to be funny? Was the joke the fact that it wasn't funny? Was the joke that it was difficult to determine what was supposed to be funny and what wasn't supposed to be funny? Does the entire concept hinge on that moment of wondering if the Catch-22 reference was the joke and also this string of questions which seem related to that moment? The wave deposits you within your lifeboat upon the sandbar. The river flows around this hillock this sandy hump on all of its sides, the river permanently divided beyond it as molecules of water which flowed to the right of the sandbar and molecules of water which flowed to the left of the sandbar, identities which can never be altered, facts staggering in their permanence. The wave leaves you, still within the boat, not floating, run aground, nakedly ready for spring now, for a speedier transition, for a brasher sun. For unique clouds and typical skies, for etc., for etc., for everything to be different in expected ways. The sandbar holds no insights. Perhaps the river was simply tired of bearing your weight. Open your eyes. You take the peace of knowing that, yes, with you for the rest of this episode, and then when it's over, 
for the rest of the week, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Something extremely unexpected happens. Number five, there will not be an installment of the battery this time. I'm sorry, but I've completely run out of things to say about bats. But really, it's pretty amazing that I lasted as long as I did when you think about it. 26 episodes with a segment of strange bat material? What a run! A run unlikely to ever be equaled by another podcast. Of that, I'm certain. That's one reason why I wanted to push it to 26 episodes. Around episode 24, I thought, you know, I'm probably in the clear here. I don't think there's ever going to be a podcast that does 24 consecutive episodes with a segment of Strange Bat material, but I decided to push it to 26 just to make sure it was really out of reach. And I did it. I set an unbreakable record. And now I can finally relax, secure in the knowledge that I did my very best for bats, which turned out to be better than anyone else would ever do for bats. Number six, Cousin Ben and Dwayne might do something, but I pray they don't. Last episode was so nice without them. I listened to that episode over and over, soothed by the sound of my own voice, uninterrupted for a solid hour, with one unfortunate nasal exception. Number seven, speaking of that nasal exception, uh, we'll probably hear from Grang this time, too. He won't have found the login information for the old Out of All Doors blog. I can at least predict that much. But I just thought of a fun contest. Write to me at outofalldoors at gmail.com or at at hugepop on Twitter and tell me what disease Grang reminds you of. The most accurate Grang disease comparison wins a prize to be determined once I see who the winner is and decide what prize I want to give them, if any at all. Number eight, uh, Steve sent me a picture of a microphone on Facebook Messenger. What could it mean? A new segment? Or was he threatening to harm me with a microphone? The lighting in the picture was eerie, and the microphone itself, still in its packaging, gave off a distinctly menacing vibe. Number nine, what if Casey does something? I don't know if he's planning to or not, but we'll at least mention the possibility here at the number eight spot in our introduction in case he does contribute something and you feel betrayed when you recall that it wasn't mentioned in the intro. Also, I might as well tell you that he and I are working on a musical project. I'm writing lyrics for it right now. I need made-up names of characters to use as song names, so if you want to make up the first and last name of a fictional character for us to use for a song name, send it to me and I'll use it as long as there's still room for more. You can also include a middle name or initial if you want. A few of you have already uh, done this, and others should follow your example. Uh, number 10, Cayman is still with the Hermits. Or wait, I think it's the Hobos right now. Regardless, it's mildly concerning that we haven't heard from him for a couple of months, because that could mean that he died of secondhand dirtiness, got his brain so fried by toxic breath that he doesn't know how to attach audio files to emails anymore, or he accidentally ended up on a train that just drives in a figure eight day in and day out for eternity, its engine powered by a self-replicating chunk of coal. Number 11, the Ghost Bat Queen probably won't have something new for us this time, but if she did, it would have that whistling intro. You know the one.
Is that it? Yes. Yes, it is. It definitely is. I'm sure of it. Number 12, Matt isn't doing a five people you meet segment this time. He's in Death Valley looking at a dune or something. But would I kill for another Felton House reading? Of course I would. I think we all would. But unfortunately, getting another Felton House segment isn't as simple as just killing people. In fact, I'd say killing someone would probably actually decrease my chances of getting another Felton House segment on Out of All Doors. So no, I don't think it's worth a try. Not for me and not for any of you. And number 13, no one's heard from the saint for months. That could mean literally anything. But maybe I'll get something from him within the next few days that's usable? You listeners don't know this, but I actually used to get way more material from the saint than ever made it onto the show. It was just too incoherent to use. And that's saying something. I mean, have you heard our show? Sometimes I think we might all be a little cuckoo, which is a term that I hate because of how juvenile it is and because of how 90% of the time when a person says it, they say it in a falsetto. Ick. Anyway, here's the letter from our listener named Wilson. Dear Out of All Doors, I am a big fan of your podcast, and over the summer I listen to many of the episodes in rapid succession to catch up to your current ones. While filling my head with many hours of Out of All Doors, I became keenly aware of the presence of bats everywhere. At first, it was just the real bats that would swoop overhead to eat mosquitoes as I ran in the park, but then I started mistaking the pieces hanging from the dilapidated ceiling of the parking garage for a bat, and the fruit growing on the trees for a bat, and the small child sitting on his father's shoulders for a bat. What should I do to regain my ability to clearly distinguish actual bats from the ones my podcast-laden brain is envisioning? Sincerely, Wilson. Well, Wilson, in order to address this question, we have to take a sort of roundabout path in order to arrive at an answer. We're going to have to go somewhat far afield. We're going to have to take the scenic route, as it were, because the answer is in that scenery, you see. In fact, all the roads along the way are going to be, for lack of a better word, winding, just as the band Oasis told us in their hit song, edit song name in here later, Adam. Do not forget. If you'll recall, it went a little something like this. And all the roads along the way are going to be, for lack of a better word, winding. We know that song, obviously, but we also know the truth that is cleverly hidden within the song, which is that the roads along the way to somewhere will be winding, such as the road we're going to be taking to arrive at the answer to your question. We're approaching the question from another angle, you see, and then another, and another, and another. We're coming in through the back door and sneaking up on the question while it sits oblivious in its fat boy chair. That way we can take the question unawares. We know that the best way to get an honest answer is to take the question unawares. The journey is not the destination, but it is part of the destination. Destinations cannot exist independently of journeys. We travel as the crow flies, nay, as the bat flies. In the interest of answering your question, Wilson... We must do the following thing. We enter the battery. The differences between a piece of parking garage hanging from the ceiling of a dilapidated parking garage and a bat are myriad, are legion. First and foremost, a parking garage comprised of bats, while vastly superior to a regular parking garage in most ways, would not fulfill the basic function of a parking garage, whereas a parking garage comprised of pieces of parking garage is ideally suited to its role as a parking garage. By the same token, a bat made of bat is nature's single finest representation of its own worth, a perfect harmony of component parts and end results, do you see? 
A bat made of pieces of parking garage, while undeniably pleasing in shape, would otherwise lack any significant charm. But how is a layman to tell the difference between pieces of parking garage and bats? For I do see where you're coming from. Both bats and pieces of parking garage could potentially hang from the ceiling of a dilapidated parking garage. I don't want to be dismissive. I don't want to say look for ears because a piece of parking garage could very well have little protuberances that from a distance and in low light look like bat ears, especially if its shape is already such that you believe it could be a bat. The same could of course also be true for wings and feet. I feel as if the best way to address the specific question posed by this specific example is to move on to another of the specific examples you gave, and then circle back to this one. I know this seems confusing now, but trust me, it will all come together. The differences between fruit growing on a tree and a bat should be more well known. But alas, in this day and age, an unfortunate majority of us have forgotten the ancient wisdom that our ancestors took for granted. Did you know that in some cultures, the differences between fruit growing on a tree and bats are still taught to children via life-size pictographs from the moment they are born? Alas. And I'll be saying alas many times in this section. Alas, we here, with our internet-based encyclopedic databases, and our institutions of enlightened learning, and our informative billboards, and our fact-absorbing headgear, and our personal librarians, and our satellites with their corresponding dishes, and our misters and misses knows-it-alls, and our bristling intellects, and our radio dramas rigorously based on true stories, and our subliminal messages within subliminal messages, and our placards sporting QR codes, and our museums filled with furniture that belonged to geniuses and which scientists believe may have been the source of those geniuses' genius, and our decent rate of literacy, and our growing appreciation for mnemonic devices, and our collections of IQ-boosting classical music CDs, and our restorative power naps, and our brainstorming sessions that consume entire weekends without trying, and our inquisitive little faces, and our eyeglasses, and our shoulders of giants on which we stand, and our massive attention spans, and our justified confidence, and our sentient search engines, and our collective intolerance of ignorance, and our lack of prejudice concerning the relationship between hotness and smartness, and our benevolent superiors, and our witch burner burnings, and our docudramas during which not a teen titters, and our educators' widely held belief that history can be fun, and our programmer-slash-coder hybrids, and our unslakable thirst for truthoids, and our nuanced antagonists, and our fixation on the word systemic, and our 12-figure research grants, and our preponderance of child prodigies, and our swollen honor rolls, and our daily discoveries of smaller and smaller particles, and our sensory deprivation overload chambers, and our lists of meditative poses we want to try before death, and our affordable psychics, and our collective unconscious, and our broadening definition of the word definition, and our wise young owls, and our grudging acceptance of illegal file sharing as a fact of life, and our district champion debate teams, and our Sesame Street episodes about logical fallacies, and our telegenic expert witnesses, and our talk nerdy to me t-shirts, and our champions of diverse perspectives galloping forth on horses of many colors, and our crossword puzzles on 
on the backs of cereal boxes, and our huge crushes on algorithms, and our bestowals of wormless apples upon teachers, and our willing enslavement to innovation, and our gluttony for podcasts, and our advertisements that trumpet their shame at being advertisements, and our bottles of which nary a one is messageless, and our vigilant moderators, and our distinctly feminine video games, and our hyper-generalized specialists, and our lifelong seminars, and our, like, phones, which are basically just pocket computers at this point, yes, with all these things and more at our disposal, alas, 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 we here have neglected to prioritize the teaching and learning of the differences between fruit growing on a tree and bats. And that's a real shame, but to really get at the core of the issue of the differences between fruit growing on a tree and bats, I think we need to take one more slight detour. Imagine you see something that might be a small child sitting on a father's shoulders, or it might be a bat. My main tips would be, well, if there's a father, then that's not a bat, because bats don't ride on father's shoulders. And second, if it's not simply whatever is on the father's shoulder that you're mistaking for a bat, but rather the entire unit of the father, his shoulders, and whatever is on his shoulders, then that's far too big to be a bat, so keep that in mind, too. But here's the thing. If you're mistaking a small child sitting on a father's shoulders for a bat, then really, what couldn't you mistake for a bat? Listen, Wilson, I know what it's like. You see bats everywhere because you want to see bats everywhere, as all right-thinking people do. What kind of dolt would prefer to see a piece of parking garage or a fruit on a tree or a small child on a father's shoulders over seeing a bat in its natural habitat, in its unnatural habitat, or in any setting whatsoever? We live in a brutal time in a brutal place. Is it the least brutal time and place in the history of the planet? You can make that case, but that doesn't change how we feel about our era. We feel badly about our era. We feel anxious and nervous and fearful. We want escapes from these feelings. Long escapes, short escapes, momentary escapes. And the right kind of momentary escape, though it be fleeting, can buoy your spirits for hours, days. Unexpectedly seeing a bat can be just such a momentary escape. Alas, the problem is that the demand for bat sightings exceeds the supply by an immense margin. There are just so many of us, and we have so much from which we long to escape here with our trying trials and our troublesome tribulations and our increasingly competent criminals and our militarized landlords and our unpredictable animal herds and our sensationalistic newsletter and our unkempt cemeteries and our poorly attended celebrations and our misfiring machine guns and our ill-fitting costumes and our underwritten societal roles and our backstabbing sparring partners and our idolization of malign influences and our unsafe seagoing vessels and our noisy neighbors and our trend-setting dunce caps and our inadequate exterminators and our indistinguishable personalities and our irrelevant footnotes and our paltry applause and our meticulously scheduled coughing fits and our slow service and our misleading avatars and our craving for human flesh and our half-hearted freestyle rapping and our grammatical pedantry and our headache fetishes, and our eight-story waiting rooms, and our out-of-focus films, and our alert spoilers, and our snake oil fountains, and our nearsighted referees, and our portraits of artists as ineffectual men, and our ostentatious signatures, and our performative self-awareness, and our typo-laden calendars, and our lewd thought experiments, and our tame leviathans, and our lack of security clearance, and our hand-me-down hair pieces, and our weeping mascots, and our droughts that refuse to listen to reason, and our forgettable choruses, and our commodified goods and services, and our long-gone ability to dunk, and our diminishing interest in short fiction, 
and our sewer-dwelling rat photographers, and our nightmarish performance reviews, and our spiteful emissions testers, and our brutish repairmen, and our choreographed coincidences, and our second-rate voice actors, and our empty files labeled manifesto, and our monuments to our own dearth of creativity, and our directionless soloing, and our undiagnosed carpal tunnel syndrome, and our insistence on describing ourselves as sarcastic in every single online dating profile, and our flooded basements, and our uncategorized phobias, and our involuntary leering, and our unsolicited professional advice, and our thoughtless endorsements of anyone who claims to hate small talk, and our poisonous chapstick, and our embarrassing x-rays, and our filthy mouths with which we kiss our mothers, and our monotone cheerleaders, and our vile timidity, and our thick-skinned whipping boys, and our mandatory lanyards, and our open letters to offspring which do not yet exist, and our less-than-grand openings, and our broken clocks that aren't even right twice a day, and our dreams which seem to hint at buried treasure beneath our crawl spaces, but which turn out to be yet more deceptions, and our tried-and-false methods upon which we nonetheless rely, and our oily foreheads, and our samey bodies of work, and our conversations so bedeviled by Freudian slips that they become unintelligible, and our Toy Store Isle-style tantrums, and our misunderstandings of company policy, and our grading laughs, and our vulnerability to cataclysmic meteor strikes, and our record-setting blood feuds, and our phones, which are basically just tracking devices at this point. Yes, with all these things from which we long to be distracted, alas, 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 bat sightings will never be frequent enough, can never be frequent enough, and if they were, would they not lose their potency? And so we arrive at our destination. The answer to your question, Wilson, we are tired from our journey, but it renews our spirit to know that it has not been in vain. We kick the dust from our sandals, we hang our cloaks on the cloak rack, we toss our spent hats in the hat incinerator, we pay the arrival tax of one dark secret per person, and most of us lie, which is standard procedure. And then we are taken into the room wherein the answer is kept. We scroll back up again to double check what the question was. Ah, yes, and then we see it, we experience it, the answer. In order to regain your ability to distinguish real bats from the ones you're imagining, you must either commit yourself to becoming more familiar with bats so that you can instinctively recognize things that are bats and instinctively dismiss things that are not bats on sight, or you must willfully digress to a state of indifference toward bats so that your brain no longer makes an overzealous effort to transform that which is not a bat into a bat. We know which one we would choose. It's the former, not the latter. Nodding our heads at the wisdom we have just witnessed, we leave the battery. Let's begin, shall we? Okay, so last month we tried to do a segment called Underappreciated Nature where I pretended to interview something from nature that people don't typically appreciate much for whatever reason. 
Last month I interviewed Poison Sumac, but of course you can't really interview Poison Sumac because it's a plant, and not only a plant, but a plant that you wouldn't want to get very close to, even if you were appreciating it. But anyway, my solution to the problem of not being able to actually interview Poison Sumac was to interview myself playing the character of Poison Sumac. See, I played both parts, both myself as the interviewer and the Poison Sumac, which is something that very few people are willing to attempt, and if you listen to the episode, well... You got to see why it's so rarely attempted. It didn't go that well. I got confused during the interview itself, and then I got confused in the editing, and the whole thing turned into somewhat of a mess. But we're going to try it again. This time I'm going to interview a tapeworm, and I will again be playing both myself as the interviewer and the tapeworm, and hopefully things will go more smoothly this time, and you'll be able to understand who's who, and you'll get some real insights into why you should appreciate tapeworms. Uh, More than you do, at least. Okay, let's give this a shot. I'm Adam from Out of Old Doors, and today on Underappreciated Nature, I'm here with a tapeworm. A tapeworm, thanks for being here. I'm honored that you wanted to interview me. I thought you wanted to interview me. What are you talking about? Didn't you invite me on the show to interview me because I'm a tapeworm and I'm underappreciated? No, I'm the tapeworm. How has this already gone wrong? You're the high-pitched voice this time, right? And I'm the low one? I don't know. It depends how it shakes out in the editing. We don't know what the voices are going to sound like yet. Okay, well, you be the tapeworm. I'll be the interviewer. Fine. That's how it originally was, so that's fine. Or actually, let's both be tapeworms, and then my voice will be low, your voice will be normal, and the third voice will be high. We don't need two tapeworms. Are you saying that as the high-pitched voice or as the normal voice? I don't know yet. We both sound the same right now. Here, okay, here's me as a normal voice. I'll be the interviewer. High voice, low voice, you're both tapeworms. Or maybe it would make more sense if me and low or me and high are tapeworms so the pitches of our voices are more similar so it'll make us sound more like we're part of the same species. This is going so badly. This is worse than last time. I'm also an interviewer so that there's balance. Two interviewers, two tapeworms. It's symmetrical that way. It's perfect. I'm the lowest voice. So who am I? If you're that low and you're an interviewer, then me and normal voice must be tapeworms? Not so fast. Since when is the pitch of someone's voice the final word on which species they can represent? So you want to be an interviewer with lowest voice and me and high voice will be tapeworms? I won't be an interviewer with normal voice. I'm sorry, but I won't do it. I just don't think that's the voice of an interviewer. I'd rather have high voice as a fellow interviewer than normal voice. So me and lowest voice are the interviewers and the two voices in the middle are tapeworms? Well, hold on. Are you even sure you're high voice? What if it turns out that you're low voice in the editing? Or what if there are editing errors and our pitches get mixed up? There are kind of a lot of us now. So you're saying I don't even know how high or low my voice is? Well, I mean, I'm doing the editing, aren't I? Are you saying that with the expectation that you're the one with the normal voice? Because even if that's the case, it isn't you doing the editing because you're still just playing the character of Adam. We're all just as much Adam as you are. You sounding more like him doesn't make you more him. Wait, who's saying that? It's me, lowest voice. You're not lowest voice, I'm lowest voice. Well, okay, as long as I'm not high voice, that's all I care about. So what am I, normal voice? That would be my guess. So I'm a tapeworm? I definitely feel like one of the tapeworms should have Adam's normal voice because it's the easiest to understand and that way the answers will be clear. Who is that? I hate to say this, but I think that might have been several even lower voices layered over each other and with a ton of reverb on them. Okay, forget this, I'm out. No, high voice, come back! 
I'm not high voice. I'm normal voice. Oh, then good riddance. Does anyone want to say something in defense of tapeworms as a tapeworm? May we please uh, we'll have to check in the editing, but I think this might be another failure. Don't be so negative. I'm sure there's something usable. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Hello, everyone. This is Cousin Ben. And this is Dwayne Leesman. And this is Regarding the Dawn. As you regular listeners know, this is our segment on nature photography and outdoor photography. You know, listeners, I'd like to think that every episode of our little podcast segment is special. But I really think this one is going to be something else. We have a very fun topic for you to, for everyone out there. We just I, It's going to be great. Well, I, I don't know if it's really that much fun as much as it's illegal. And you see, listeners, this is sort of a, well, a, a crossover episode, if you will. We will be blending several amazing topics together all in one show. Ben, I just want to go on record right now as saying that this is probably not a good idea, and it looks like we're spying on people. Oh, hush, Dwayne. Just you wait and see. This is going to be great. I'm telling you. So, listeners, I am sure that many, many of you out there realize that today, February 24th, is the birthday of Beatrice, Nebraska's most beloved son, the famous poet Weldon Keys. Um, you heard right, poetry lovers. A little vestige of my former poetry segment for you diehard fans out there. Weldon and my poetry segment may be gone, but neither are forgotten. But you were just telling me how no one in Beatrice knows anything about Weldon. And they don't even know that he's famous and that he... Once again, Dwayne, you are missing the point. The point is that poetry is making a guest appearance on Regarding the Dawn. And we will... But we can't photograph a poem. What? No, that's not it. Just, I'll explain more. Just eat your chips and let me finish. Fine. I don't mind if I do. Anyway, so, Weldon Keyes' birthday was today in 1914. And we are here tonight, parked in front of one of his childhood homes in Beatrice, to not only discuss the photography topic of this episode, but also to potentially have a very special subject to photograph as well. What? That's right, Dwayne. Today on the show, we are talking about photographing cryptids. Crypt? Um, you didn't say anything about gangbangers. I- I'm not... No, 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 not crypts. Cryptids. Cryptids. Oh, oh. Hmm. Yes, Dwayne. Mythical and mysterious creatures that evade our camera and eyes and yet capture our imaginations and keep us watching the woods, the skies, the ditches, the... Bigfoot. Well, yeah, Bigfoot is one of the more famous cryptids, Dwayne. One of many such creatures. So, why are we sitting in town outside Weldon's house again? (laughs) Isn't it obvious? No. Well, because we... All right, look... All right, all right, look, Weldon, he, he disappeared, right, in uh, 1955. Yeah, so? Well, some people thought he committed suicide. Some thought he ran off to Mexico never to be heard from again. Yeah, and? Well, he would be 103 today, Dwayne. Even, so if he did run off to Mexico, I mean, he's he's probably dead now. So I'm hoping that maybe, just maybe, we can see his ghost tonight, and maybe we can take pictures of him, and then we can... Ghosts aren't creatures. What? Ghosts aren't cryptids. They aren't creatures, so they can't be cryptids. What? We... 
I like it matters, Dwayne. It does to cryptozoologists. Well, I don't care what the animal handlers say. I am not going to Cryptozoologists, dude, not zookeepers. Whatever, like you know. Like, you wouldn't know a cryptid if it picked your pocket. Funny. I'm sure Eldon would find that hilarious. Wait, why? You know Eldon Langley? Of course. I was just talking to him last night on the messenger. Really? Why? Why do you think? Discussing cryptids. Okay, now you're just messing with me now. Why would you? Why would you? Why would you be talking to anyone, much less Eldon, about cryptids? I just chose this topic this week, and I didn't tell you what we were doing. Oh, Ben, this has nothing to do with you or the podcasts. What? This goes way beyond anything you might suspect, Ben. I've been researching cryptids since I was very young, and I can tell you that no matter how much you think you know, you don't know Jack. This is a topic shrouded in misdirection, subterfuge cover-ups and shadow agencies and many missing persons i don't i don't understand no you don't ben and you won't this isn't a topic you need to be trifling with or encouraging our listeners to dabble in it's dangerous this isn't child's play this isn't flower photography or time-lapse stream photos or fawns frolicking in a wooded glen this is serious business Wait a minute. What makes you an expert, huh? I mean, what, you watch a couple documentaries and text Eldon once or twice and, and boom, you think you, you can come in on the podcast and try and scare people when I pick a new t- topic? <laughs> oh, no. If only that were true, Ben. But no. I've seen things. Things that no one should have ever seen. Bigfoot, Nessie, the Jersey Devil, Chupacabras, the Ozark Howler, the Mothman, Champ... Bunyip, mermaids, and the skunk ape? All child's play. I've come face to face with the worst that nature has to offer. Bunyips? No, Ben. I've seen the blood beast of the Yukon. The what? Yes. The blood beast. Never heard of it. You wouldn't. The blood beast isn't widely reported on or known of. The sightings are extremely rare. And there aren't many survivors. But you are alive. Yes. And no one knows why. All we know for sure is that when I was seven years old, my parents took Audrey and I on vacation to a cabin in the Canadian woods. And while we were there, one day I was out playing in the snow with my grandfather's hatchet. I wandered off alone and was trying to cut down some small saplings, when suddenly I heard a deep breathing noise behind me. And when I turned, I saw it towering above me. The most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life, dripping and drooling, its breath and body steaming in the cold air, a shiny behemoth, slicked head to toe with blood, blood so dark red it was almost black, the snow melting around me as the blood poured off of it and left a carpet of death everywhere it went. It raised its arms and howled at me, splattering me with blood, and then, and then I blacked out. When I came to, I I was in an ambulance, and my parents were there, and and I was covered with blood. Covered. Just like the blood beast. And everyone was crying and and hysterical. And and I remember, I was calm, though. But after that day, the therapists started, and, and the specialists. No one could find out what happened, or why I was still alive. No one could crack my repressed memories of that day. But you, I mean... I mean... So that is why... This is so important for our listeners to hear. Cryptids are not something to trifle with. You want my professional advice? 
You leave monster hunting to the suicidal ones, the ones who have nothing left to live for. Never, ever, ever go looking for trouble, because the trouble will find you. Ah! Ah! Oh man, it's the cops. No, 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 dude, I, I'm on parole. Be cool, be cool. I'll, I'll handle this, I'll be cool. Alright, alright, here we go. Hello, officer. What brings you out tonight, gentlemen? Weldon's ghost. Shh. Excuse me? Nothing. No, not, um... We were just sitting in here and talking. Uh, no big deal. Uh, huh? We got a call about a suspicious vehicle with two men arguing in front of a residence that looks a lot like what we have here. Oh, no, no, no. We we weren't arguing. We were just, um, um... Uh, what's nothing. in the bag? Cameras. No! No! No? I mean, I mean, yes, but it's not what it looks like. We're we're photographers. Yeah, and we're recording a, a, a podcast. Re- recording in front of a residence. Yes. No, no, that's not it. Well, I mean, I mean it, that's not what it seems like. It's uh, is that a recording device right there? Yes. <sighs> just, just shut it off, Dwayne. I'm going to have to ask you two to step out of the vehicle and keep your hands where I can see them. Alright, we're recording, Greg, and before you say anything, I'm just going to warn you that if the first thing that comes out of your mouth is hola or bienvenidos a out of all doors or any other Spanish words, I will hang up on you immediately. Are those words Spanish? Why would I say something in Spanish? Alright. Yes, they are Spanish, uh, but, alright, the reason I said that is I I can see you're at the same internet cafe as last time, so I was worried that you'd still be insisting that you're in Mexico, but if you've come to understand that you're actually in Des Moines, Iowa, that's good. That's, That's progress that I wasn't expecting. I have very low standards for you, Greg. I know that you're not going to get the password for the old Out of All Doors blog. I know that's never gonna happen, but... I don't know. It's kind of sad that I'm impressed with you for eventually figuring out that you're in Des Moines instead of Mexico. Well, Drent, I'm I'm always happy to hear some positive feedback, but this is one of those rare instances where your effusive praise is actually incorrect. Not because I'm not deserving of that praise, but because you've misdiagnosed the reason why I deserve the praise, which is that I was right all along and I am in beautiful Des Moines, Mexico. And yes, it turns out that it is pronounced like Des Moines. The locals have confirmed that, but I believe it got anglicized like Rio Grande or Cancun. How is Cancun anglicized? In the original Spanish, it's pronounced Cozumel. So, so you're in Des Moines, but it's not Des Moines, Iowa. It's Des Moines, Mexico? Yeah, it's like how there's a York in England and a New York in America. I actually think that this is the original Des Moines here in Mexico, and the one in Iowa is technically New Des Moines. Typical American cultural appropriation. But, of course, New Des Moines doesn't hold a candle to beautiful Des Moines, Mexico, the original Des Moines. Is it beautiful? In a way, it's actually supposed to be in the mid-40s today. The locals say that there will be leaves on the trees again in possibly less than two months. I I just don't understand how you can think you're in Mexico, yet have no idea why I'd assume you'd try some high school Spanish on me. You really need to travel more, Drent. You need to get out of your apartment and see the world. Have some experiences. You should know that English is the lingua franca. 
everyone speaks it, like the whole world over. In fact, it almost seems like more people speak English here in Mexico than they do back home in Illinois. It's been really convenient. Grang, have you uh, ever heard about the study that showed that the more facts people are presented with that contradict their beliefs, the more tightly they cling to those beliefs? Well, of course I have. But did you know that the author of that study recanted on his deathbed? All right, fine. Grang, my formal on-the-record opinion is that you are not in Mexico, but for the sake of moving this along, let's just say you're in Mexico. Ah, good. An agreed-upon statement of fact. I'm all for this, Drent. Unification. That's what this podcast needs. So what are you doing in Mexico? I'm locating the Crow Chief through my criminal underworld connections. I've infiltrated a Mexican drug cartel, and I'm keeping my ear to the ground for any information as to the Crow Chief's whereabouts. I haven't heard anything specific yet, but they trust me more and more each day. Wait, 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 wait. You think you joined a Mexican drug cartel? Yes, I think that I did that because I did do that, which in my opinion is the best reason for anyone to think that they've done something. Uh, okay, why? Well, no, why isn't going to get me anywhere. Let's start with how. How did you join a Mexican drug cartel, Grang? Well, my powers of observation really made it quite simple. I know that since the Crow Chief is hiding from the law somewhere here in Mexico, then that means the people most likely to know where he is and how to find him are people who are also on the wrong side of the law. You see? So my plan was to wander around town and use my powers of observation to spot people who appeared to be criminals. And since my powers of observation are so trustworthy, I knew that anyone who even appeared to me to be a criminal definitely would be a criminal. Then I would introduce myself and convince them to let me join them so that I could get close to them and use their connections to find out where the Crow Chief is hiding. And this might sound like a strategy too difficult for you to even attempt, Drent, but I actually spotted the cartel I'm now with almost immediately. They were standing around outside a convenience store, and they actually approached me with an operation that they needed my help with. I asked them if they were a cartel, and after some confusion and some explaining about what I meant... They assured me that, yes, they definitely were, in fact, a cartel. Hold on, hold on, hold hold on. You're saying the whole cartel was in front of this convenience store together? Yeah, the entire organization. How, How big is this cartel? You mean, like, how big is their influence? I think it's pretty considerable. None of the other cartels have made any attempts on their lives since I've been with them, so it seems to me like the other cartels must be pretty afraid of them. Now, I'm asking how many people are actually in the cartel. Including me? I mean, sure. I mean, As long as we're being this liberal with the definition of Mexico cartel, we've been very liberal with the definition of detective in the past, and, and many, many other words. So, let yeah, let's be liberal with the definition of in, too. Including you, how many people are actually in the cartel? Well, let's see. There's Cody, Tyler, Derek, me... Four. Um, That's four names. Your cartel has four people in it. Well, there is this guy named Warren who comes over sometimes, but I wouldn't really say he's in the cartel. He doesn't even live in the same hideout as us, and he doesn't really get along with all of us cartel members either. There's one guy he especially doesn't get along with. But I think that to be a member of a cartel, you should have to get along with everyone in the cartel, 
even if one of them is significantly older than the others and has a superior vocabulary and has two pet crows which squawk when they're agitated, which is often to always. And also Derek's girlfriend stays over sometimes, but she's always getting on our backs for how much weed everyone except for me smokes, and that's not very cartelish behavior in my opinion. So, so what was this operation the cartel needed your help with? They needed me to buy beer for them from the convenience store. All right, so so you're the only person in the cartel who's old enough to buy beer? So so the cartel is comprised of minors and you bought beer for them. So the the cartel operation they needed you for was buying beer for minors. Yeah, well that was the initial operation. That was my initiation into the cartel. They have pretty strict laws down here in Mexico about who can buy alcohol. You have to be older than 21, believe it or not. But since I am older than 21, it was actually pretty easy for me. I had anticipated something far worse, actually, like burning down a police station or something. And it doesn't bother you that you're, you're knowingly committing actual crimes now? Maybe it would if I were in the U.S., but since I'm in Mexico and I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm not technically under the jurisdiction of Mexican law. But, I mean, also, you and I both knew that we'd probably have to break some eggs in order to make this omelet of finding the crow chief and getting the login information back. That omelet sounds revolting. Well, how would you suggest that I infiltrate a Mexican cartel? By not breaking any laws? Is that all you've done? You bought them that beer and and they let you into the cartel? Yeah, that's mostly what I do. I buy them beer, I buy them snacks, I buy them Mountain Dew. You know, just like regular cartel business. How how are you paying for all this? Don't you have negative money? Are are you going in debt to 7-Eleven now, too? No, no. I pay with cartel money. They give me money, and then they send me out for the hookups, as they call them. They're always asking me if I've got the hookups, and I say, no, not yet, but I can go get the hookups whenever. And then they usually say, go get them right away, and so I do. Where does the cartel's money come from, Grang? So far, it sounds like all your cartel activities involve spending money. Well, Cody and Tyler work at two different GameStop locations, and Derek's parents give him money. And I think sometimes his girlfriend does, too. Grang, how is this a cartel? They're working day jobs. Drent, please. It's cultural. The cartel told me that many cartel guys work day jobs. But, of course, the sensationalistic American media never talks about that. And didn't you hear me say how much weed the cartel smokes except for me? Cartels sell drugs, Grang. They aren't just slackers who work low-level day jobs and smoke weed and trick older idiots into running errands for them. Listen, Drent, until you've been here and you've seen what the conditions are like with your own eyes, then honestly you can't really comment or pass judgment, you know? Like, I really respect what you do, and there's no one I'd turn to before you if I had a question about the outdoors. But until you've been to Mexico and seen how the people live and experienced their culture in an authentic way, then you can't really comment. And and I don't mean just going to the touristy places and staying in resorts. I'm talking about being among the real people of Mexico, staying with them in their cartel hideouts so you can get a sense of their actual customs of what day-to-day life is really like for the people of Mexico. Right, okay, Greg, well, why don't you just tell me, or tell the listeners, 
what one of the most interesting customs is that you've witnessed during your time among the real people of Mexico in the uh, in the cartel hideout. Okay. Well, Drent, did you know that in Mexico it's considered rude for guests to use the furniture? What are you talking about? It's it's true. Guests have to stay on the floor at all times. Or if they're resourceful, guests are allowed to craft their own furniture out of materials they find lying on the floor, such as the bed that I've made out of old Doritos bags. All right, I'm not responsible for any of this. I'm officially washing my hands of this. I'm I'm just getting this premonition of, like, approaching darkness. Or you're misinterpreting your premonition entirely, and what you're actually getting a premonition of is actually twin premonitions of the approach of the login information for the Out of All Doors blog and the approach of my new podcast segment idea, Breaking Dad. Is, uh, is that a play on Breaking Bad? What's Breaking Bad? That doesn't even make sense. It seems to me that if something's bad, then it must already be broken. It was a TV show about a teacher who gets himself wrapped up in something that's way over his head and ends up alienating his family and ruining his life. Uh, does that sound familiar? No, but then again, I haven't really watched much TV since I've been gone. So is your segment about how you could have been a slightly below-average dad, but your consistently imprudent and irresponsible choices have broken this? No, it's the exact opposite of that, Drent. It's not breaking a dad, it's breaking dad, you know, in scare quotes. The segment is about how I deconstruct the negative stereotypes we associate with the concept of dad, and myself embody genuine fatherhood. So, just for example, so when you think dad, you probably think of someone who's making his career a higher priority than spending time with his son. But I abandoned my career altogether in order to pursue a higher calling and thereby set an inspirational example for my son. Or maybe you think of a dad as someone who misses his son's baseball games and school plays because those events provide good opportunities for cheating on his wife. But I'm missing my son's school plays because I'm risking my life in order to take responsibility for making the world a better place. Breaking Dad. Take everything you thought you knew about Dad and break it. Timmy is like five months old. He's not going to be in any school plays for years. Well, fine. Then I'm missing whatever it is that five-month-olds do in order to take responsibility for making the world a better place. I'm missing his first piano recital or whatever. Well, Greg, that's a giant no on your segment idea, which is actively depressing. And I'm just going to reiterate that you're not in Mexico. You are in Iowa. You're being taken advantage of by juvenile burnouts, and you're breaking the law, and going around saying that you're in a Mexican drug cartel is a terrible idea. Uh, what else? You probably still have Udavald assassins after you, and I don't know how I forgot, but that Adam guy died back in Croton, and then the wrong man was imprisoned for it. And you've piled up, what, thousands of dollars in debt, and you missed your son's birth, and the first five months of his life, and your wife, in all likelihood, loathes you, and I'm just telling you this so that in case something happens, I can cover myself and say, like, I told him to stop. Yeah, Drent, I want to stop looking too, which is precisely what I'll do once I've found the login information. So, I mean, really, if you think about it, after I find the login information, there won't really be much of a reason to look for it anymore. 
So I'll almost certainly stop at that point. And if, for some reason, after I find it, which will be soon, if after that happens I'm still tempted to keep looking, I'll definitely remember this valuable piece of advice you've given me. So, thanks. All right, well, this is basically the reaction I expected. I don't really expect you to stop, of course, uh, but I'm just telling you to stop, and it's being recorded and distributed, and people are going to hear it. So no one will blame me when whatever ends up happening to you happens to you. So, goodbye. Uh, Okay, bye. This is the five children you meet at the Nature Center. Number one is the child who wants to tap on the glass. This child requires constant scolding. If you're not an employee of the Nature Center, well, don't let that stop you from joining in on the scolding. This child needs as much scolding as he can get. Whether fish, snakes, mice, praying mantises, it doesn't matter. If this child sees them in a glass cage, he will do everything in his power to tap on that glass. Without the constant vigilance of every responsible adult in the nature center, there will be no glass that goes untapped upon if this child has his way. Some people blame the fact that he isn't old enough to read the please do not tap on the glass signs plastered everywhere, but that's not true, because he is old enough to read them. He chooses to ignore them. How would he like it if he lived in a glass cage and people tapped on the glass constantly? Well, knowing him, he probably wouldn't care because he'd spend all of his time tapping on the glass from inside the cage. That's how much he loves tapping on the glass. Number two is the child who is too rough with the iguana. This child hears the same instructions about being gentle while touching the iguana that every other child hears. He hears how touching the iguana is a privilege, and if anyone is too rough, the iguana will have to be put away, and no one will be able to touch it. He sees the Nature Center employee demonstrate a very gentle two-finger stroke on the iguana's back. But still, when it's his turn to touch the iguana, what does this child do? He snaps it with a rubber band. The Nature Center employee puts the iguana away immediately, and all the children in line who haven't gotten to touch the iguana yet never get their chance. Does the child who is too rough with the iguana care? It's hard to say. He's melted into the crowd. He got what he wanted. Number three is the child who releases the scorpions. Even this child's own mother probably doesn't find this behavior cute. The scorpions cause panic, stinging sandaled and flip-flopped feet, crawling up pant legs, scuttling into empty coffee mugs, and becoming entangled in wigs, perching on fleshy faces while eyes cross in horror and screams vibrate their undersides. This child is no anarchic mastermind, he's just naughty. But this is a perfect example of how the results of both such outlooks can be indistinguishable from one another. Number four is the child who changes the tree age placard. This irredeemable rascal makes it so the placard informs all who look at it that you can't tell the age of a tree by counting its rings. While the consequences of this misbehavior are certainly less grave than those of the scorpion release, that almost makes it more disturbing. What could a small boy possibly get out of tricking people into thinking you can't judge a tree's age by counting its rings? It doesn't seem as inherently satisfying as watching a crowd of people scream in panic and stampede for the exits. And number five is the child who asks awkward questions. Why don't elks build boats, he asks. How come elks don't have a space program? Why don't elks have a written language? How come elks don't appreciate soccer when it's the most popular global sport? All of his questions are like this. Have elks ever been asked to deliver a university commencement address? 
How do you tell elks you're not interested in co-owning small businesses with them? Nature Center employees smile at first, then the smiles fade, then they ask him to let someone else have a chance to ask a question, then they try to ignore him, but he stands up and shouts his questions at the Nature Center employees, jabbing his index finger at them like a reporter trying to nail a slippery politician to the wall. Where do elks go to get rejuvenated? How are elks supposed to know how to behave in court if they're never told? If elks were here right now, would you treat them as shabbily as you're treating me? What are you going to do for a living when elks take your job? I'm not saying you have to interfere when the child who asks awkward questions really gets going, but if you want to, one thing you might point out to him is that the word elk is already plural. He doesn't need to add an S at the end of elk to make it plural. Not all of you may be aware that Gentleman's Mills first got into the money-making business by being two literal gentlemen who milled what else cereal. And this month, to celebrate our whatever anniversary, we're re-releasing some of our classic cereals and a whole slew of new ones. Here are a few of the best, tastiest, and most gentlemanly cereals ever milled. Let's start with some of the classics from back in the day. Number one, Bite and Quit. One single bite and you're done. This cereal is intended for neither chewing nor swallowing. Number two, too much. A cereal box filled to overflowing with flakes, puffs, oats, and whatever else have you. No room for error, no room for anything. Boxes of too much could not possibly be fuller. Number three, who let the dogs out cereal? Dog-shaped cereal that, when poured, blasts the Baja men's first single who let the dogs out, a burst of infectious energy first thing in the morning. The Baja men are also pictured on the box. This product was an admittedly hotter idea when it was first conceived in 2011, the height of the Baja men's fame. Number four, goods enough. The eponymous Mr. Good is a magical little mascot who grants you some of your greatest wish, a plastic bag about a quarter full of cereal. No one knows what constitutes enough quite as well as Mr. Good, who is also very well dressed. Number five, Marathonjevity, a baked six-foot thing of oats sculpted into the shape of an enormous Subway sandwich. Spray milk on the portion you're interested in and eat. Takes the treasured tradition of cereal and adds the treasured tradition of the sandwich. Appear cultured and refined as you carry it home from market wrapped in paper. Number six, just add milk. A bag of powdered milk to which you add milk to get a bowl of milk so thick you won't need anything but milk. Number seven, bitten bites. Most cereal looks like it was made on an automobile assembly line, but each piece of bitten bites is a little bit different because it's obvious that someone's nibbled on them before packaging. Each bite is as unique as each of Gentleman's Mill's treasured customers. Number eight, bullied bites. A real live bully roams the cereal aisle and forces several boxes of bully bites into the cart of every shopper who passes. Bully bites aren't for bullies, they're for you, the bullied, a cereal of the people. Number nine, Handsome High Schooler, a gift cereal designed to be purchased for any male teenager by any middle-aged to elderly aunt or great aunt. Number ten, Lycums. This cereal capitalizes on the popularity of social networking. It's an empty box with instructions printed on it explaining how to log onto various social media platforms and like Lycums. And number eleven, But What of Hammer? The last $18,000 of MC Hammer's dwindled fortune, blown on 100 boxes of the tastiest cereal ever made. But what of Hammer? 
And now also some brand new cereals from Gentleman's Mills to celebrate the whatever anniversary. Fruit Mobius Loops. These delicious fruit-tasting treats, variety flavored with fruit-like ingredients, are only diminished by their difficulty to be fully grasped by hand or head, and have thus been deemed basically indigestible by the FDA, leaving morning diners too fascinated by Euclidean possibilities to remember their very hunger, inducing eventual starvation and death. Sure enough, Fruit Mobius Loops have been considered a direct inspiration for Fruit Regular Boring Loops, which are only a hit insofar as they are tangible. Pleasing's Puffs. If only his name doubled as an accurate adjective to describe his puffs. Gum Increments. We've taken Gentleman's Mill's yummy sticks of gum and cut them into bite-sized scoopable increments ready for your morning meal time. Just add milk. Warning, do not swallow the increments. We've provided an increment disposal retainer that chewed increments can be spat directly into. Priest Meal. Made out of the same material from which communion wafers are derived, priest meal proves the old saying, Thou canst not be both mushy and dry, decidedly false. Its packaging is also entirely devoid of lascivious spokesmodels, except for two printed on the inside of the box, where few priests will be tempted to look. Bowl Cuts Fill your favorite haircutting bowl with Gentleman's Mill's bowl cuts before placing the upturned bowl on a shaggy head for scissor guidance. Then snip away while your haircut receiver eats the bowl cuts that tumble past his boyish mouth. Healthiest Bites For the health-conscious consumer, nothing is more valuable than information. Truly nowhere on the planet is it truer that knowledge is a powerful item. But do we really know what we're eating down to the bite? With that in mind, Healthiest Bites from none other than Gentleman's Mills affixes a QR code to each of its square-shaped bites that can be scanned by a smartphone to give an exact reading on that square's caloric density, fiber, and even the quantity of hazardous adhesive used to affix the QR code. So eat away, informed consumer, now smarter, happier, and hungrier. Shoe Shapes From high tops to low tops, you'll find both shapes of shoe immortalized in puffed rice. Note, the shoe shapes can only remain immortalized if one refrains from eating them. Temper Tant Yums the big fat hissy fit of cereals for spoiled children and the spoiled child in all of us. Dictionary Bits. An admittedly impractical homage to alphabets, Dictionary Bits should have at least limited its ambition to single syllable words, but it did not. Penny Pinchers Tempters. This costly cereal is for thrifty shoppers who are ready to give overpaying a try. Weaklings. Even the biggest wimps in the world can dominate this cereal with ease, devouring it with the absolute minimum of resistance. Give breakfast the swirly it deserves. Some O's. Most of the pieces of cereal in a box of some O's are just shaped like whatever, but some of them are shaped like O's. Note, not every box of some O's contains a piece of O-shaped cereal. Milk Soppers. The pieces of this cereal can absorb incredible amounts of milk into themselves, expanding into massive squishy lumps too engorged and sodden for any one spoon to handle. Feeling Oats. This experimental cereal temporarily imbues sociopaths with emotions they are not naturally capable of having. Non-sociopaths should refrain from eating them so as not to cry themselves to death. And Conjoined Flakes. Only you can separate the conjoined flakes, Dr. Customer, with the surgical precision of your hungry bites. But will the patient survive? No, they're too tasty.
Thank you for listening to the 27th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, Grang Lynch, Chris Nichols, Ben Bird, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By, Chris Nichols, and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make as the mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those, too. And the Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. And also, extra thanks to Chris Nichols for putting all the previous episodes of Out of Old Doors and One Man's World on YouTube. They're at the channel Huge Pop, written as one word. We'll be back in a month with episode 28 of Out of All Doors. 